Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. At almost the same time that the explorer John Franklin went missing in the Arctic, another explorer, Ludwig Leichhardt, went missing on an expedition crossing Australia. In both cases, these explorers made their greatest impact on the world after they disappeared. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Andrew Wright Hurley talks about the life and afterlife of the Prussian explorer Ludwig Leichhardt, a man whose reputation has shifted to reflect the changing cultures of Australia and Germany over the past 160 years. Hurley is an associate professor in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's the author of Ludwig Leichhardt's Ghosts, The Strange Career of a Traveling Myth. Andrew Wright Hurley, thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Michael. So Ludwig Leichhardt is a Prussian man born in 1813. He studies philosophy and natural sciences at Göttingen and Berlin. And then he travels through Europe in the 1830s before heading to Australia in 1842. Why did he go to Australia? Well, that's a, that's a good question. He was tossing up going to various other places. There was a family connection with one of his male friends and benefactors in one of the Australian colonies. And so that's probably one of the reasons why he decided on Australia. But I suppose uh, more broadly, Australia was regarded during the 19th century, among other places, as being a, a location where a great deal of new work in, in the national, uh, natural sciences could be undertaken. So I think that was probably one of the significant reasons, in addition to this family connection of one of his benefactors, William Nicholson. He, uh, he makes an expedition after he arrives from Brisbane on the east coast of Australia, uh, and it goes all the way to uh, Port Essington, which is, I think it's at the very top of the Northern Territory. That's a pretty long hike. It's a long way, yes. What was he? Uh, what was he trying to do? On that particular expedition, 
he had wanted to join an official expedition punted by uh, the colonial government, uh, but that was delayed for, for various reasons, funding and so forth. And ultimately he was, uh, the way he expresses it, he had a thirst for knowledge and couldn't really wait for an official invitation. He had spent quite a bit of time, I would say, around the frontier, beyond the frontier in the uh, colony of New South Wales. And that was sort of a his, his apprenticeship in Australia, if you like. Mm. During that time, he had quite a lot of contact and was was hosted by a great many people who were squatting in the area, people who'd, uh, who'd taken up land. He also had quite a lot of uh, contact with Indigenous people who were also living in those areas. And he formed the view, whether it was his idea or whether it was an idea that others had uh, before him, it was certainly an idea that he could uh, mount a private expedition, so supported really entirely by by squatters and uh-huh. with the assistance of uh, Indigenous expeditioners as well. He formed that idea and set up uh, a fairly light expedition and uh, off they went. And uh, people were quite you know, stunned. It seemed to me from your writing that people thought he might have died in the in the process of, of going that long distance. He was gone for over a year. He returns to the East Coast, and in April of 1848, he launches another expedition to cross the continent um, from east to west with four Europeans and two Aboriginal guides. What happens on that expedition? So I'd just, I'd just say two things before I talk about that one, yeah. which, is, which is regarded by people... Uh, who are interested in Leichhardt's life and, and activities as the third expedition. So the first expedition, which is the one between Queensland or what became Queensland and the Northern Territory, the Port Essington expedition, that would be the first expedition. He then, after returning from that and being fated by colonial society, decides to set out fairly quickly on another expedition bound for the West Coast for the Swan River settlement. So right across Australia. However, after about eight months uh, in the field and not really having progressed very far at all, in fact, no further really than he'd got on the first stage of his first expedition, they had to turn around. There were all sorts of uh, difficulties they encountered. And so that expedition, this second expedition, as it's referred to, was was an unmitigated failure really. And that failure, the success, and then the failure and then the final expedition where he tries to do the same thing again that he's already attempted and then disappears, as the law has it, they're the three expeditions and the, the disappearance on the third expedition combined with that hero and failure aspect of the first two huh. really contribute to you know, this mysterious and mythical kind of figure of Leichhardt. Yeah, uh, just so that people know the distances that he was trying to cover from east to west is about 3,000 miles. Is that correct? It's a very long way. I, I yeah. couldn't tell you exactly, but it's, it's pretty much, depending on whether you're going in, a, in an arc across the top of uh, the continent or straight through, uh, it's, it's a long way, a very long way. I want to ask you some questions about the afterlife of Leichhardt uh, in popular culture. But before we get to that, I just wanted to ask, what do we actually know about that third expedition? Is there any 
information about what happens to him? So the expedition progresses for a short while from Moreton Bay, which is basically where Brisbane is now, and progresses to various stations, squatting stations. The party continues for a little bit, and then Leichhardt decides to backtrack to the last station where he's been to give a final report of of how things are progressing. And he says things are progressing well, and then that's it. He uh, disappears, Hmm. according to the European or or, uh, Settler Australian version of things. Now, there are two ways, I guess, in which that idea of disappearance has been uh, questioned in, in recent times. I should say disappeared without a trace. There were and have been any number of uh, search parties, expeditions and so forth, which were sent out, you know, where people took off of their own accord or were sent out by colonial um, governments. And they had turned up all sorts of traces, nothing conclusive. But as I say, this idea of disappearance is really part of that iconic myth of the, the explorer who disappears. Yeah. But it has it has been queried, undermined in, in various ways. Firstly, there is this rather fetishised plate bearing the name Ludwig Leichhardt. It's a piece of brass with those letters stamped into it and a date. Conveniently, it has a date, so it's 1848, which is the year that he disappears. This was found at some stage around about 1900 in a location which is not really precisely known at all was handed down in various ways and has finally ended up in Canberra. I don't know whether when you were in Canberra uh, on your trip, Michael, you saw this Ludwig Leichhardt nameplate in the National Museum. Is it at the uh, National Museum? It is at the National Museum. Yeah, I saw it. So this is a piece of, uh, of metal which is thought to be the only authenticated relic from that final expedition. Mm. And I'm currently writing something about a sort of an object uh, biography of that rifle plate. But it is the one thing that sort of is thought to be a, an authentic relic and can give us some idea about how far he might have made it across the continent. I say it's quite a one-sided presentation of that particular rifle plate. Uh-huh. It doesn't talk about the various Indigenous parties who would have been in possession of that piece of metal at different times in its life. And so in research that I'm currently undertaking, I'm, I'm trying to uncover and speculate about some of that that meaning associated with that. The second way in which this idea of disappearance has been uh, questioned and and criticised is, is in the form of Indigenous literature, actually. So in 2015, a man by the name of John Wenatong, writing uh, under a, a, a pseudonym, uh, Pemilwoy Weatunga, wrote a little, a short novel called The Vanishing. And he says in that and in, in interviews related to when he published it, that the idea of disappearance or, or vanishing is really not accurate because there were always Indigenous people who were qu- closely watching the progress of these expeditions. Yeah. And so he's sort of pointing to the fact that there would be Indigenous law associated with the progress and demise of that, that last expedition. He doesn't then say this is exactly what happened, but he writes a novel where he speculates about what it is that might have happened and and he imagines an attack on the party 
by Indigenous people who perceived that the party was going through their lands and, uh, you know, invading lands, um, disturbing sacred sites and so forth. So he disputes that idea of disappearance from an Indigenous perspective and then imagines what might have happened after the time. He, he just really joins the queue or the long line of various other writers, almost all of them apart from him, are non-Indigenous, uh, who've speculated about what happened on that famous fated last expedition. So he's just coming at it from a different and clearly identified as Indigenous perspective. You know, uh, there are so many interesting parallels here, and you, you write about them in your book as well, between Leichhardt's disappearance the way that people go looking for him, the way they imagine possible fates, the role of um, indigenous witnesses to uh, this party um, in the voyage of uh, Sir John Franklin, which also disappears at almost the exact moment in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about this I don't know what you see as the significance of these lost explorer story. I mean, there's also David Livingston slightly later, but um, who goes missing as a British missionary in um, Central Africa. So in the Australian colonies, that example of John Franklin is, is at the forefront of people's minds. Franklin had been a governor in Tasmania or Van Diemen's Land, one of the other Australian colonies. And so he was known to colonial society in Australia. Interestingly, by the early 1860s, the example of, of Franklin is quite clearly called before people's eyes or called before people's um, consciousness in Australia by a German fellow and the efforts that he made, a fellow who was Victorian colonial government botanist, uh, Ferdinand Müller. He was very much aware of the precedent of Franklin but also very much aware of a German precedent, a guy called Eduard Vogel, who had disappeared mm. on the African continent. And there were great activities which were undertaken amongst the German diaspora, German-speaking diaspora. At that stage, there was no unified German state. This is a time of sort of burgeoning German nationalism. And this figure of the missing German a naturalist, Eduard Vogel, in Africa is this sort of rallying point for this German diaspora, including in Australia. Money hmm. is gathered in the Australian colonies by German speakers, of which there are quite a number. It's transmitted back to the German-speaking lands and, you know, an expedition in search is sent out. So there's that German aspect where sort of a German nationalism is floating around and, and uh, will a light, if you like, on a figure like Eduard Vogel, or in this case, Ludwig Leichhardt, as a sort of a proto-nationalist, uh, at least someone who can be a, a, a rallying point or, a, or a, a person of significance to, to draw up that sort of nationalist uh, sentiment. There are other things at play there as well, the desire to continue the sort of work that Leichhardt had been doing, gathering botanical specimens and so forth. But there is this nationalising and nationalist element that's at work. But those Germans, they know very well how to, how to use the example of Franklin. When they're speaking to a German audience, they'll say, we should do for this Leichhardt character what has been done for Vogel. And for the English-speaking audience, they'll say, what about Franklin? 
There are various attempts that have been made to find him. In Australia, in the Australian colonies, people just don't care enough and that doesn't reflect well. So they're, they're sort of needling incipient Australian sentiment, um, also, you know, Britisher sentiment in Australia as well. Come on, you need to do something. Do like has been done for, for these other figures, being very careful about their audience in, in either case. Yeah. I was thinking about how Leichhardt fits into a really interesting century of Prussian explorers. I mean, you have um, Humboldt, of course, who must he must have been compared with. And then uh, you have later on Heinrich Barth, uh, who's exploring the, the Sahara and the Sudan. You also have Heinrich Schliemann, who rediscovers Troy uh, during this period that you're talking about, during German uh, unification in 1870. And, and Karl Moch, who discovers Great Zimbabwe. I was wondering if there's a way in which either this generation of Prussian explorers is similar in the way they explore or the way that people interpret them, either German Australians or Germans back home. Uh, So the link with Humboldt uh, was certainly in the forefront of people's minds. And as you've sort of alluded and as I mentioned in the book too, he was regarded by German speakers as being something of a Humboldt of Australia, although he never lived as long, never wrote up his uh, research really anything in anything like the way that Humboldt was able to. So a lot of the data that he gathered is just raw data uh, mm-hmm. in, his, in his notebooks and diaries and so forth, which have just been published. So it's really hard to make out exactly what sort of potentially, you know, German scientific mind was at work there and and what he might have shared with, with Humboldt and Humboldt's way of thinking or indeed people who came afterwards. However, I would say that in more recent times, so with the desire to publish his raw scientific data gathered in these notebooks, in the commentary by botanists, for example, introducing those notebooks, there is an attempt to say, well, what he is doing, he's making botanical observations, he's making geological observations, he's bringing those things together. And so he, he has a, an ecological vision, which is not just, you know, very, very specific in relation to one of these fields, but he's looking at things more, more globally. And they would say, those commentators, you know, present day botanists would say, well, that's actually quite akin to what Humboldt was was doing as well. So there is a similar sort of reception story about him to Humboldt as well. So that's that's an interesting parallel. I suppose things do change when the prospect of German colonization becomes more of a possibility. So in the 1870s, until that time, it was often the case that these well-trained German scientists or German-speaking scientists would have to go out into the world in, for example, Anglophone colonies to undertake the sort of new scientific discovery work that they, that they wanted to do. So it wasn't uncommon for, for German speakers to go to, for example, the Australian colonies, but also other places, you know, join British expeditions in Africa, for example. So the way in which uh, Edward Fogel, who I mentioned before, or others did. When the prospect of colonies comes in, then the idea is that, well, people could be doing exploration in, in areas that might become German colonies. And 
you know, when the colonies do then get established in the 1880s, all sorts of work can then occur in those places in an easier sort of way. Doesn't mean that those figures who had been involved in scientific work in other people's colonies would get forgotten, though. Mm. In fact, we find that they get sort of pulled in in some of the, the, the sort of lobbying work and around about that time that there is lobbying going on for German colonies to say, well, look, these people have been more or less doing colonial colonising sort of work in other places already. You know, they can be an example for other people, Germans who might want to go out and join the German colonial effort. So they don't get forgotten, they get pulled in, but in an, uh, unexpected sort of ways perhaps. You uh, you write that it's not all hero worship of Leichhardt, that there are plenty of people, especially after the catastrophic second expedition, that uh, begin to criticize him, especially Daniel Bunce, who's the botanical collector on the second expedition, and then others pile on after that. Why do you think that Leichhardt becomes a controversial figure, not just a heroic figure? Uh there's been some scholarship, some older scholarship on, on this, a book from about 1980 by E.M. Webster, who talks about Leichhardt and his friends and foes uh, in the Australian context. And she is more inclined to see the character blackening of Leichhardt as part of a, a personal vendetta by one of Leichhardt's rivals in the Australian context, uh, Sir Thomas Mitchell. And his descendants. So someone who joined that second expedition, this failed expedition, a, a fellow called John F. Mann, who was with Bunce on that expedition, and Leichhardt and, and various others, he publishes, very late in the piece, publishes a, a hatchet job on Leichhardt. And he happened to be the son-in-law of Sir Thomas Mitchell. So there are arguments that you can make that there's, there's a personal sort of vendetta. Leichhardt did this wonderful expedition between Moreton Bay and, and Port Essington and really took away the opportunity from, from Sir Thomas Mitchell. She doesn't touch so much on the, the broader socio-political changes that are going on in the Australian part of the world and particularly, for example, the unification of Germany and the, the consequences that that ultimately had in the, uh, in the Pacific uh, region. So one of the colonial fields that the unified Germany enters into is the Pacific. So German New Guinea becomes a colony very close, very uncomfortably close to uh, the Australian colonies for many. And so there are all sorts of geopolitical aspects that pile in as part of what one scholar calls, you know, the Anglo-German antagonism that just <laughs> goes really from from unification and builds and builds and builds into the First World War. And he's a, he's attacked for matters of character, right? Character and and uh, his ability to command the expedition. Correct. So, you know, there's a, there are attempts to sort of belittle his ability to command. So he's read in a, in a sort of a military context, but as being inadequate, you know, not being able to, to discipline, for example, indigenous expeditioners. You know, he just sort of gives them too much uh, leeway, too much liberty and in the view of people like John Mann and others subsequently. So that criticism does sort of coalesce in various areas. One relates to his sort of inability to command. 
inability to d- discipline uh, Indigenous people, being a sort of a bumbling fool and not really knowing how to navigate and find his way from one place to another, and also various other things, including his, you know, his masculinity. There's there are various sort of snide remarks that are made about the fact that he didn't undertake Prussian military service. So mm. he is regarded as being a draft dodger who went to Australia or to the Australian colonies to to avoid that. That gets pulled out. Man even goes so far as to su- suggest that he's Jewish, which uh, he doesn't use in a blatantly anti-Semitic fashion, but you know he's he's putting it there, which is actually nonsense. Uh, Leihart wasn't Jewish, but he puts it there, and there are, there are caricatures in his in his book that he published as well, which sort of suggest that uh, you know some of these kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes as well. So he sort of puts that there as something else to sort of um, blacken in a in an indirect sort of yeah. way uh, in that context. One of the things I really also liked um, a lot about your book was that you not only describe Leichhardt's afterlife as a explorer figure that means different things to different people, but also how he kind of appears in adventure fiction, these adventure novels of the late 19th century, sometimes called Lemurian fiction novels that often feature a uh, one of the survivors uh, from the Leichhardt expedition. I was wondering if you could talk a little about that. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned the the efforts in the 1860s, concerted efforts that were to send out an expedition, and they they culminated in something called the Ladies Leichhardt Expedition, which was, of course, unsuccessful, but they were driven by this idea that all of those years later, so from 1848 to around 1865, there might be a survivor out there. Mm -hmm. The whole party might not have died and they might have just been in too remote a place and uh, this person would just probably be waiting to be rescued by a party of hardy Europeans. That idea of of a survivor gets wrapped up also in the idea of people being kept in in Indigenous captivity. So there are these sort of captivity stories that are feeding into that idea that the survivor who might well be in captivity and needs to be liberated. Did any of them, just as a point of curiosity, feature uh, Leichhardt survivors that had gone Native and uh, had become part of the Indigenous community? Yeah, I mean, that is part of some of these stories. There are quite a number of the stories and, and that idea of, of someone who's gone native, that does continue to this day, actually, in, in different sorts of yarns and utopian little novels and the idea of someone who might have made a, a conscious decision not to return to to the European settled areas but to, to go native, that's very much ghosts around as a possibility and uh, various people sort of have grappled with what that might signify, whether it's it's a desire to become more reconciled with Australian place and with, with Indigenous communities, read it as a type of a critique of the colonial project as it, as it played out in Australia. So yes, they are very much part of the story. Probably a bit later on, you know, there's a very interesting little, tiny little novel from the 1890s, I think it is, by a fellow called S.A. Rosa, where he is, is basically a socialist and he suggests that Leichhardt and other members of the Leichhardt party have gone native indeed, have started a sort of a socialist utopia with Indigenous people and, and with Lemurian populations, so the idea there being 
pre-Indigenous, pre-Aboriginal people who might be a survivor from when all of the land masses in the Southern Hemisphere were joined up as Lemuria. Uh, this is the idea. So in some of them, including this, the, um, this S.A. Rosa novel, there is that idea of going native and forming a sort of a, a socialist state uh, with Indigenous people and living in living the good life in a remote location. And this would be a sort of an example for how things could be in the rest of Australia. So, yes, that very much is part of the story. One of the things that uh, makes your story so interesting to me is that, you know, Germany itself goes through so many radical transformations. And so... Leichhardt is also adapted to these different periods of time. So, for example, you have like a Nazi Leichhardt and then a socialist communist Leichhardt. I was wondering if you could take us into the 20th century just to show how uh, this vision of the explorer changes during and after the war. Uh, sure. So, already in the 1930s, there are some sort of attempts to share Leichhardt going on. So, it's it's whilst you might view a period when ultimately Australia goes to war, you know, the Federated Commonwealth of Australia goes to war against Germany for the second time in the 20th century, whilst you might sort of say, well, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why the Leichhardt in Australia, who, who sort of identified in Australia and created posthumously, would have to be so different from the Leichhardt who Germans might seize upon during this Third Reich, you know, National Socialist era. And in one of the chapters of the book, I, I sort of set these two different versions of Leichhardt next to each other and show that there are in some similarities. So that the nationalist frame is, is very clearly shared by each of those two different locations and, and sets of authors. And there's also a clear, I mentioned before, seeing him as an inadequate commander or a commander, that, that that same framework is there. So what sort of soldier is this person actually? That question is, is very much the same question which is being posed on either side of the divide with a different answer, of course. <laughs> the Germans, the, the National Socialist would say, well, he's, a, he's an ideal officer. He's strong in times of need and, and is supportive of foot soldiers and all this sort of thing. And in Australia, those who are out, to continue that tradition of denigration, say, well, no, he's he's a rubbish soldier. He, he avoided military service. But the questions that are being asked are the same. Yeah. It is, of course, the fact that there's a polarisation in the value associated with him. So in Australia, it's not the whole story, but, but it's a significant and prominent part of the story. A book is published which really does him down, a book by a fellow called Alec Chisholm, just a few years after the first proper biography of him is written by an Australian woman, which is actually quite the opposite and says, well, there are various things to admire about this, about this man and about his activities and about his, you know, his vision for, for Australia. That doesn't get listened to so much. It gets overshadowed by this book by Alec Chisholm, which is very much in, in key with the zeitgeist of, of Australia at war. And it's, it is this hatchet job, which is performed on Leichhardt. And then it goes into about three different uh, editions and is in, in print for a long time and, and continued long after the war to really influence the view that many Australians had of Leichhardt. Yeah. In Germany, that national socialisation of Leichhardt, it doesn't just happen in the form of, you know, authors taking 
taking this figure and, and promoting him. There are also various little um, regional museums dedicated to him that come to the fore. There are radio plays which are published. There's a his birthplace or, or very close to his birthplace in Brandenburg is renamed from a, an unfortunately sort of Slavic-sounding name to Leichhardt. So this place, Trebuch, becomes Leichhardt. There are all sorts of things that are going on in that area. So they're partly textual in novels and, and imaginative literature and partly other sorts of activities that are going on. Andrew Wright Hurley, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Michael. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.